everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. This is one of our Ask Me Anything follow-up episodes where we answer the remaining questions from the AMA time after our Sunday service. Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, is going to answer questions both related to and unrelated to the sermon with Jill Reese, who is on staff. Looking ahead at the fall, we're coming back with new content next Tuesday. We'll be releasing a short series of episodes that aligns with our new sermon series, The Next Good Thing, which starts this Sunday. As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We'd love to have you join us for our new fall series and for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. and I'm the content and ministry coordinator for Pastor Nick and we're following up from the AMA in the September 6th sermon uh, called Holy and Completely. So Nick is here with me. Hey. And we're going to follow up first on a few questions that did come up in the AMA but we either answered incorrectly or incompletely. So um, first Nick, um, there were some tech issues and the people listening to the live stream could not hear a certain part of what Nick was saying. And so Nick, could you tell us what you were speaking about when the mic wasn't working at the beginning? It wasn't the announcements. It was something else. Yeah, I think it was about the offering. And I was just saying that um, the attitude of the elders and staff is still that when the church gives is, has given more than our budget, that instead of saving that into an account or like thinking that that's really just for us to spend on ourselves, that um, the church wants us to give that money away or at least a good portion of it. Um, now like it's a little complicated because some of the overage giving last year, we had a couple of people give very large gifts because they sold businesses and stuff. So we got like a, a one-time $200,000 gift and a one-time, I think it was $160,000 gift. That's never happened in the 10 years I've here that we ever got even one gift like that. And for that to happen in a year like this is kind of weird, you know? Um, and so we're not, we haven't, the intention of those givers was not that we give it all away, that that they were giving it for a different reason than that. But the, the other overages or that people had gave to the COVID fund or to the um, the um, fund focused on benevolence, those funds especially were trying to make sure we give away and give away in a timely fashion. So in uh, this last week, we, we gave a sizable check to a to an immigrant pastor whose church just a lot of people got laid off because there are a lot of hospitality and restaurant sorts of folks. And this pastor just couldn't make ends meet. He had been giving some of his money away. And so we, we gave him a sizable check to just help him make it through. He's very, very, very thankful. Mm, that's super encouraging that you guys are giving mm-hmm. in that way too. All right. Nick, you also talked about a little bit about Lloyd and how he's doing and how we're supporting him, but also how we can grow as a multi-ethnic church, even though we don't have Lloyd as one of our pastors. Uh, one question that came in is if we are also considering competent women within the church for this position, the position of associate pastor. Yeah, it feels like you just asked me three questions. Um, the question is, are we also considering competent women within yeah. the church for this position? For this position? Yeah, I think the answer is no to that question. Um, because here's why. Because uh, High Point um, is founded on the biblical conviction that the role of elder, pastor, or overseer, which is really one role, um, is supposed to be populated by men. That that's the exclusive testimony of the scriptures. The scriptures seem to teach that in like directly in books like first Timothy and Titus and um, that 
there's a bunch of scriptures related to gender roles. And the only way to make them all make sense without remainder is to understand the office of elder to be um, for men. Um, for a number of reasons I won't go into. And a number of reasons we were, we have not been told by God. Um, what, yeah. Anyway, so I could go a lot more into why we're complementarian mm -hmm. and we actually have podcasts on complementarianism and why we hold that view and what it means. Um, and so I would, if, if you're wondering like, well, why do you think that, that those are the podcasts to look for the ones that are on complementarianism, but because it's so whenever there's a role at high point where the role is predominantly the work of an elder, in those cases, we do not consider um, women for those roles, any role in which we would consider having a man do the job who wasn't an elder we could, we will equally consider women for those roles, which is most of the roles of the church. There's only three roles where the role, the job of that role is, um, the work of a past the work of a pastor, elder overseer. And that is the executive pastor, the senior pastor, and the, the preaching associate pastor. Mm -hmm. So we do have directors that are women at, at high point, mm -hmm. And that is very similar to a pastor, but we have a different name for it because they're not elders. Yeah. There's a little ambiguity with the word pastor because the word pastor literally means shepherd, right? And there are people, there are women who serve in roles that are shepherding roles all the time. Like when our kids director was a woman, Kathleen Trader, she was shepherding kids and families. Um, and so people could easily be like, well, wait, what, well, then why don't you call her a pastor? And the, the reason for that is because the Bible uses the, the words elder, overseer, and pastor interchangeably upon the same office. The words mean different things. Elder means older and experienced. Overseer means has the authority to do something. And shepherd means to guide or care for. Um, but in the early church, um, it was normative, not just, not just indicative, like it just happened, but it was normative, like it was supposed to be this way, that there were certain men appointed to be elders, overseers, and shepherds. And a person who inhabits all three of those roles simultaneously is what we refer to usually as a pastor. So when, and so um, at high point in our constitution, people become a pastor when they're elected by the congregation, by two thirds of the congregation. And it also means that they have to do all the pastoral duties of an elder, which includes things like church discipline and facing conflict and dealing with conflict. And oftentimes um, we don't make just anybody deal with that. People who aren't pastors, when there are issues of church discipline or major conflicts, our pastors deal with those because they are, they are supposed to be of the Christian stature so as to handle conflict well. Which is yes, very difficult. Yeah. And part of this question mentioned the word competent, competent women. And so this isn't at all to say just because the roles are different, it doesn't mean that there's a difference in competence. It's a difference in authority and what we believe the scriptures say about that. And so you can listen more to other podcasts we have on complementarianism. And we go into that more in those podcasts that we can get into right now. Yeah. There is a possibility that God sees a difference in competence in some tasks distributionally between men and women, mm -hmm. but that's not actually taught explicitly anywhere in the Bible. So it's hard to know if right. that's true. All we know is the, is what God explicitly told us to do normatively, which is that elders, pastors, and overseers are everywhere in the new Testament, both assumed and indicatively taught to be male. Yeah. All right. Let's dive into some questions related to the sermon. So the first question is, it is simple to say we test prophecy hold to what is good and flee from evil. But how can we apply this to prophecies about the future? It seems like that can be much more difficult to test. Yeah. There's a couple, a couple ways to deal with that. The, the first is to say that um, 
I, th- I think that the Old Testament standard still applies, at least in this. So in the Old Testament, if somebody prophesied something and it happened, then you'd consider them a, a real prophet. And if it didn't, you're supposed to stone them. Now, I don't think you're supposed to stone people who are wrong, but I do think that track record matters. And that, that happens with different people's gifts. Like one of the reasons why people come on successive Sundays to hear me preach is because of track record, right? That they've heard me before. And they think that a teaching gift operates through me well, right? Similarly with a prophet, like usually over time, you get to hear somebody engage in this gift a number of times and you get a sense for whether or not the person knows how to hear from God or not, or if God's really talking to him or not, you know? So for me, track record's a big thing. Um, I still think discernment matters. If somebody prophesies about the future and it's fishy, like it doesn't seem to go with the character of God, then I don't, I wouldn't go along with that. Um, and even if somebody does say something's going to happen in the future, that should only cause you to commit yourself to some act of godliness, right? It, I mean, and if it does that, then, you know, God bless everybody. I mean, great. I mean, whether it comes true or not, I guess, but, um, but I, I think in, I think in a lot, I think you need to be really careful with predicting the future, especially if it feels manipulative. Like I predict that this person should be your wife. And like that kind of thing. Like I literally had somebody to come out of the service day and say, I remember when we were between pastors before and there was a lot of controversy and somebody stood up and I said, and said, God has told me that so-and-so is to be our next pastor. And the woman telling me this was like, and this guy did not know what he was really like. They didn't know what his character was like behind closed doors, how he treated people. He seemed like a really godly person, but like he wasn't that godly. And I knew it because I was working with him in a particular ministry. And she's like, I just knew that wasn't from God. He was just speaking his own truth, so to speak. So you got to be ready for that stuff. So one of the things I had in my sermon notes, I didn't get to talk about much was there's no shortcut on discernment and wisdom. And that, that isn't a disposition. That's a, a, a thing you build over time. So I'd say, yeah, it's like, it's, it's simple, you know, like don't, you know, be open to it. Don't hold it with contempt. And then, you know, discern, you know, test everything and then do what's good and avoid what's evil. But the testing part is a, it's you a discernment. Discernment is a, is like wisdom. It's an accumulated knowledge and applied skill that takes time and emotional intelligence and it's developed. So it's not easy, but that's why the church has elders. I mean, you're supposed to in the church be able to watch the elders and learn from how, how they do it, you know, but in order to do that, you have to have prophecies in the church and the elders have to judge them publicly for you to see that. I've talked with Mike, Pastor Mike, a little bit about this because I had some questions about some prophecies that, or some things that people have told me or spoken into me that felt very much about the future, but I couldn't see anything in the present that would indicate what that look looked like. And he gave two, um, he, we talked about two things. One was similar to what you said, Nick, but this is important in discernment in, in terms of spiritual gifts is we're looking for the fruit of something and looking for the fruit of that gift. Um, and so that's looking for the fruit in someone else. But also if you feel like you have something from God to, to exhort someone else or for someone else, look for the fruit in your own life too of that gift over time and, and say humbly that I, this, I don't know if this is from God or just something I thought of, but this is came to my mind. Um, and then second is time and testing with discernment over time to when you hear a prophecy from someone or something that could be a prophecy to watch. It's more of a, a, a marker for watchfulness to see what will happen over time than to take that and 
say, this is happening right now. Um, I've had things told to me 10 years ago that I felt like this feels very much from God, but I don't know yet. And there's some fruit that I'm seeing right now, but it was from a decade ago. And if I would have said those things Mm -hmm. at that time, it would have not been the, it wouldn't have been out of discernment. I've seen that a bunch of times where the timing is off. Mm -hmm. So it like, it seems like God is saying something prophetically through somebody, but the time is off by like a factor of decades. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's true. I also think people struggle with um, being critical about their own work of prophecy, like to be like, yep, I guess I was wrong about that. That's very mm-hmm. rare. Cause, because for a lot of people believing you're hearing from God, you like, they feel like they really have to exert faith to believe. And then to be like, oh, I guess I was wrong. Feels like you lack faith. And so it's hard for people to be both critical about their own prophecies and make like actually prophesy. And so in some ways I, I have some grace for that, but in other ways, I think over time, some people should be proven to be reliable prophets and others not if it's an operative spiritual gift, which it is. So I, I've known a few prophetic people, prophetic people in my life where I thought they were pretty on most of the time and they had a real flowing and operative gift as far as I could tell. And then other, a lot of people just kind of like, you're just saying stuff, you know? Yeah. So. All right. The next question is related to f- gifts of the spirit. What do you think is the best argument for cessationism? And could you define what that is first? Yeah. Cessationism is the idea that the operative work of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the spirit ceased, hence cessationism, at a particular time, either at the death of the apostles or um, after the formation of the early church, or most commonly after the canonization of the New Testament. Um. Yeah, so the, there, there's a couple arguments that can be made on behalf of cessationism, which I which I don't believe in, but I think arguments can be made for it. The first is that um, there's a lot of time in people in the Bible where nothing happens. So um, early dispensationalists would say, you know, there were these like dispensations or moments in the Bible where God worked miraculously. And then there's huge amounts of time in between. And so when, when people of a charismatic stripe act like the work of the spirit in the Bible in the narrative books is normative for all people, all times, everywhere, and you can just apply it just straight away. They're like, that doesn't really work. Like, um, there were a lot of, I mean, you know, Elijah and Elisha are like a very rare thing, right? They just, they show up, they do their thing, then they're gone. And, And then, you know, there's a prophet here, there in Israel, but this is over hundreds of years. So one of the, one of the arguments from cessationism is like, you might call like agnosticism related to cessation, right? They'd be like, yeah, like there are going to be these eras where there's big movements of the spirit, but they're, they're short and and punctiliar. They're not like always the same. So yeah, the early church had this big explosion of the work of the spirit to formalize the church and canonize the new Testament and give it momentum. And then that era of the work of the spirit stopped. Right. And that partly you can see that in the history of the church, like for hundreds of years, there's virtually no literature on things like speaking in tongues or prophecy. Like if you read, if I, like I've read a bunch of the church fathers after about the second century, you just don't hear about it, you know? And for like more than a millennia, I mean, just nobody hardly ever spoke of such things. There's a couple things where, uh, in the, um, Kalzinsendorf, the, uh, I forget the Hernhut community, I think it was people did some things that sounded like speaking in tongues, but ultimately it resurfaces at like Azusa street. And I mean, there's some other like references, but not much, you know what I mean? And so, um, 
if you look at the history of the church, there's, it's just not filled with evenly with these the history of these gifts operative. Does that make sense? And so people have said it's because it probably isn't. It's probably seasonal, right? Now you could still say, yeah. And for some reason at the beginning of the 20th century, God started a new season of his outpouring of the spirit and the Pentecostal revivals and in the first, second and third wave of the charismatic church. And that's possible. Right. But, but, but it, it breaks up this whole idea of absolute continuity of the work of the spirit in the book of acts right to the present. Um, also, I think po- one of the things cessationists do well is point out problems in a lot of charismatic arguments. Um, for example, there's, uh, the, the um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit isn't always accompanied by speaking in tongues in the book of Acts. Um, the Holy Spirit coming as a second gift after conversion at the church and churches in Judea is part of a historical narrative about the gospel going to the Samaritan people who are not Jewish and how Peter and John were part of their affirming that God gives the Holy Spirit to everybody. It wasn't to show Christians later that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second distinct filling, right? So there's a bunch of stuff where charismatics, where cessationists attack charismatic arguments and they're right. But where I think they fail is to actually put out the whole fire, which is to say that the work of the Spirit through the gifts of the Spirit ceased. No argument that I know of achieves that. You can show that charismatics have had terrible excesses, that they've been manipulative and terrible in many instances. You can show that they have strange expectations that they misinterpret many passages that they say certain things about narrative texts as though they were normative texts and all these kinds of problems. But when you get right down to, can you show from scripture that the work of the spirit by the gifts of the spirit was going to end? The answer is no, you cannot. And the book of first, the book of first Corinthians is a particular problem with that argument. Cause there's a number of places that demonstrate that that was never God's intention. Do you think that those seasons you mentioned where there was, it seemed like there was less work of the spirit, at least talked about or really evident, is that related to quenching the spirit like you talked about today in your sermon? It might've been. I mean, we do know that there are lots of areas where there was a lot of corruption in the church. Throughout the whole history of the Byzantine and medieval church, there are lots of references to miracles but not really like speaking in tongues or prophecy. So some miracles that are really hard to believe in, like monks flying around churches, which I don't believe happened, but maybe they did. Who knows? So yeah, you just don't, there's not a continuous record of the main two gifts that charismatics tend to emphasize, which is speaking in tongues and prophecy. Those don't have a lot of continuity in the record. Now that doesn't mean they weren't there. It just means that, gosh, it's conspicuous that they were so absent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. The next question, can you expound on, uh, can you expound on how to focus on God's faithfulness rather than our lack of faithfulness? Oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood the grammar in this sentence. I'm going to start over. Can you expound on how focus on God's faithfulness rather than our lack of faithfulness can lead us to resilience? That was like water for a thirsty soul. Yeah, I I think that you have to keep focusing on the grace of God, right? I mean, that one of the reasons why the word grace appears over and over and over again in the Bible is that we bypass it because it's, we think we already know it. And then we get on to the stuff that we need to do. 
Right. It's one of the reasons why I really get frustrated with people who are like, I want more application. Can we get more application, more application in the sermon? I'm just kind of like, what you actually need is less application and more gospel. Like, I I mean, I just want to ask people, are you doing right now everything you know to do in Christ? And the answer is never yes. Right. So like you already have applications you're not doing. You don't need more. What you need is more fire. You need more life. You need more water for your soul. Right. And that comes from focusing on God's work. Like God has saved you and God is doing this work and God will bring it to completion. So I would do it just the way I did it in my sermon today is like, as you read the Bible, pay attention to the logic of grace. That God himself, see, it was in the details. The reason why it spoke to you was that I just, I just brought out the details that were right there in front of your face that God himself is doing it right. He's going to sanctify you and he's going to keep you blameless to the end. And the one who called you, is faithful and he will do it, right? All those markers of God's graciousness in this process, we're all there. You just have to look for them. And then when you look for them, you emphasize them and focus on them and think about them and try to, um, to try to take in what some theologians call the doctrines of grace. Hmm. When I was in college, uh, I was in a Bible study and in a Christian group that was very focused on a specific Bible study method where you always ended up with an application that you could take for the week, which is great. (laughs) However, I remember being in a Bible study once and someone said, we were studying, I think the book of Isaiah or an Old Testament book. And they said, I don't like studying the Old Testament because there's not application. Like there's not commands of what I should do. And I think that gets back to what you're saying, Nick, that the Bible, the Old Testament is filled with God's faithfulness. It's filled with stories of how God has worked and what we can take about his character and apply that to our lives now because of his faithfulness. And so um, studying the whole scriptures and seeing how he's working can add to and help you focus on what he does and the kinds of ways that he works to apply that to your life versus a specific command that you can read right in the scriptures. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Not every application. It's it's part of this is the confusion that an application is an action, which is false. An application is something that you can personally take from this, but that could be something like encouragement or a different way of thinking about something, changing your conceptualization about like, like, you know what I mean? That renewing of your mind that, that uh, Romans 12, one through three talks about, you know what I mean? And so when people think, that the sermon where I try to change your mind about something or encourage you, that's not application. It's absolute. I'm applying this to you. That's literally application. People who just want a to-do list, like do this, don't do that. They miss all that. And then they, and then they try to do stuff. But they don't have any motivation to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So application should, application is anything you can take away for yourself. Anything that has relevance is application. And you should think of it like that. And you should hope that you should hope that like 95% of applications, if not 99% aren't something more for you to do. Cause if every sermon had all these things in for you to do before, you know, it, you'd have been told thousands of things to do and you would be doing 20 of them, right? You don't even do the stuff you know to do. You don't need more application. You need more gospel. You need more changing your mind and you need more encouragement is what you need. So, right. Yes. Yeah, I always bristle at that logic because people don't understand how wrong it is, you know, and it, it really hurting. It's really, it's not like I'm mad at them because they don't like me. It's it, it's really hurting them. They're not even listening for what they really need and they're angry because they're not getting the thing they don't need. Yeah, and Jesus promises us an easy, easy yoke because he changes us from the inside out so that we can do the right thing, not so we can have this huge to-do list 
that we're not equipped internally to do. Yeah. All right. So some questions that are unrelated to the sermon. The first one is, should Christians use the term social justice? Hmm. I'm a little torn on that one because social justice was invented by Christians, namely Catholic Christians in the social, sorry, in the social thought of the late 20th century. It was later co-opted by liberal theologians and American liberals in the progressive tradition to be part of a social project relative to the sixties and disestablishment. And then it just in the last 10 years, it's taken on a whole nother life of its own relative to um, sociological radicalism and critical race theory. Um, I think that critical race theory as a holistic ideology is idolatry, a false gospel and an abomination. However, like many false gospels, it has a lot of really important insights in it that can be that can be derived and taken from it. Um, and so it's it's one of those deals where you're where you just you find yourself constantly saying yes, but no, yes, but no, yes, 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 but no, but no. You know what I mean? And um, there's a lot of Marxism in it too. Is the problem, and it's mostly Marxism. And so no matter what insight you get social, so from the social sciences, it's always applied through these Marxist lenses of revolution and class consciousness and false consciousness and all of that, which is very unchristian and very unhelpful. And, and, and it ends up being very warmongering, I think, for a number of reasons. So, I, so when I use the word social justice, it's usually because I'm going to redefine it from what people think it means. And I, and I think that um, it's also a very fishy category because you can mean literally anything by it. You can mean anything you approve of because justice, the way we've historically understood it in relationship to law is individual by nature. So when you say social justice from a historical perspective, you're actually speaking an oxymoron. You're saying something that literally doesn't make any sense at all, right? <clears throat> because for just, justice to be done upon someone, they must be individually guilty of a law that they know that they've broken and should not have. And the penalty is public. Social justice is the idea that we're all corporately guilty for something or are corporately responsible to do something. And that that is a form of seeing things in relationship to justice. Now, I think that that's true. Um, but I, th I think that when it gets bereft of its Christian categories, it goes to follow very fast. So my answer is yes and no, and be careful. And the minute you say social justice, you're getting co-opted into categories that are not very Christian. And yet there is such a thing in Christian faith as justice that is more than your libertarian rights or your the personal breaking of laws. You owe your neighbor something that isn't literally provable by libertarian justice. You are your brother's keeper. <laughs> And that is a social bond that you can say you don't want, but that exists nonetheless. And the duty that is indicated by that social bond, um, you must necessarily grapple with. And to do your duty in relationship to that is an act of justice towards the social group that you're a part of and is therefore social justice. So 
It's tough. Yeah. So I would, I encourage people who are want to be woke in a, in a truly Christian way to check out Michael Novak's book. Um, Social justice isn't what you think it is. I think he does a pretty good job in that book of explaining the differences. Um, but essentially social justice in Christian terms is your duty to the, um, to the concentric, concentric circles of society moving out from your family toward the state and what is truly your individual duty to each one. It is not co cooperating with the government to bring about utopia, which is what social justice means in especially progressive circles in the present. Does that make sense? But nor like, but there are also some libertarians and conservatives that just sneer at the idea of social justice. That is nothing but a progressivist race critical theory ploy to destroy America. And like, and, and that's not really true either. We do have responsibilities to people other than ourselves that we did not choose that are true moral duties, right? And conservatives believe that. That's why they joined the army, right? They believe it. They believe like that they should fight for their country. Well, your country is a social, like you're fighting for a social group and you feel like you have some noble duty to them. That's social justice. That's what it is, right? So anyway, obviously I could go on about this for a long time, yes. but I have a follow-up question. So yeah. because this term is so loaded and people mm -hmm. have a lot of preconceived notions about what it means and how they feel about it on either side politically, is there a better term we should use to better encapsulate now what we mean as Christians? By what I mean, historically, mean? yeah, I mean, historically we've used the word love or justice. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that there's there. I mean, I mean, obviously Christians came up with the term social justice because there, it was, it was a, I think it was a Pope trying to get at something in the modern world because after industrialization, things were getting real disconnected. And he's like, no, there's, there's a justice that's relative to our communities, even beyond our families. And it matters. And we'll call, let's call it something like social justice. Right. So obviously the word was invented because we needed one. So I'm not sure there's a word that covers it, what we really mean without remainder. I mean, that's, I think why I didn't just say no, you know, it does mean something and it means something important. It means something I would even say is necessary, but it's because it's so co-opted by some very anti-Christian, not just non-Christian, but anti-Christian ideologies, including ideologies of violence and create the create. I mean, like if you think in my view, critical race theory, whether it wants to or not is, must engage in identity politics and identity politics by definition is the restoring of the dividing walls of hostility among human beings. And like, you can't be for getting rid of the dividing walls and be for reconstructing the dividing walls. You can't do both at the same time. And so Christians can say that there are still dividing walls and that they disproportionately affect black people, for example, but your goal still has to be in Christ to bring down the dividing walls, not to re-erect them or strengthen them. And that's something I think that um, if you are not critical in your analysis of critical race theory, you can easily fall into, you know? That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. The next question, how is glory different than honor? I would say that glory is a fuller word than honor. Honor is more specific. So in honor, you are revered for an action that you take that is noble, right? Honor is in, in a sense, the recognition of nobility. Glory is, bears in it. So, so for, you can be honored 
and fail. Right. So like I could try to, I could try to fight somebody fail. Right. And I could still be honored, but I, I can't be, I can't receive glory. Right. Glory has in it bound up with the idea of triumph. So glorification is to receive honor, but to actually experience triumph and the recognition of that triumph. So that's why we refer to our ultimate salvation as glorification, not honorification. Because there's, it's not just that God recognizes us, but that in Christ we triumph. And that is, that is operative, and that's not in the word honor. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Those are all the questions we've got for today. Boom. So, boom. That was pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. Even with a relatively long rant on social justice and something else. (laughs) Great. Yeah, we didn't have as many questions this week as we normally do, I think. But all right. Well, thank you, Nick. Yeah. And we will see you guys next week. Yeah, wait, 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 wait. Um I wanna hit a couple of things really quick from last week. Can I do that? Yes. So there was some talk about politics from Mike's sermon last week. And I need to hit a couple of these drums like one more time. Okay. Okay. Sounds so good. So one of the, one, there's, there are two things. One is there was some pushback on Mike even mentioning the name Mike Pence in his sermon. And I think it's because people already associate Mike with conservative politics. Some that the, that, that's, that's his political convictions. And so when he even just said Mike, Mike Pence in relationship, Mike Beresford said Mike Pence's name in relationship to choice schooling, People, Democrats think of choice schooling as a conservative issue, and then they think of Mike Pence as a conservative. And so that means Mike's a conservative, and he's trying to make us all conservatives. Okay. First of all, the vast majority of people we are working with in the choice school movement are Democrats. That's just a fact. It is true that there is Republican money that is sponsoring and paying for stuff and helping people start choice schools. But most of the people I'm working with in Madison in relationship to choice schools are Democrats, and they have... The kids are from Democratic families and their parents vote for Democrats. And the only time they fight with Democrats is when Democrats try to take away their choice schooling. Okay. So this is one, choice schooling is one of those issues that for minority Democrats, particularly blacks and Latinos, they are perfectly happy to be Democrats who believe in choice schooling. And the reason for that is, is that within the coalition of the Democratic Party, black people are lower on the food chain than teachers unions, right? And teachers unions control pretty well what happens in public schools, right? The government schools. And so when, if black people want something to be different in schools, it's very difficult to get it done, right? But, and so choice schools are ways to get some of that done and access it personally. So I just want you to know that like most of the people I work with in the city of Madison around choice schooling and that Mike works with are Democrats. They vote Democrat. And um, certainly the families use the, the choice system are overwhelmingly Democratic voters, okay? Secondly, I did not get pushback from the same people when I encouraged the entire church to go to a Black Lives Matter endorsed African-American Association of Churches march about George Floyd. Nobody was like, I mean, I had some conservatives say, you think that's the right thing to do? I mean, they were really nice about their five or six people were like, yeah, I got any concerns about that. I was like, yeah, I have concerns about that. I certainly do. But I still think we should go. And I think we should be supportive of justice. And then we can talk about what policies are best. And they're like, okay. And it, listen, it was a super uber progressive liberal event. Okay. It was led by Christians. Yes. But the most progressive Christians. And they, I mean, literally I was standing there and 
Everett Mitchell at the very end was like, listen, and the most important thing, the most important thing you could possibly do is to vote out this orange haired bastard and like get us some sanity, right? Like meaning you need to vote out Donald Trump, right? Now, listen, that, that's a little political. <laughs> and I just, I know Democrats were like, Nick, I can't believe you got us involved in political stuff, right? So it's just, I, I want to just like, remind people that we live in a culture right now where everything is considered political. Okay. So if the church is non-political, we literally can say nothing about anything. Right. And that's not an option because I'll be condemned for that as a leader. I can't, it's not an option for me. So what I have to do is I have to, as best as I can call balls and strikes on each individual issue and do what I think is right. So when I think we should make a showing for racial justice, because that's what we should do, not out of loyalty to the Democratic Party, but out of loyalty to Christ, that that's what I'll encourage people to do. And when I think we should go to a thing that Mike Pence is at, because I think choice schooling is necessary to Christianly disciple and help with the education of underprivileged African-American and Latino kids, I will be for that. And I don't give a rat's patootie if the guy on stage is a Republican or a Democrat. I don't care. And I'm going to work with pastors who I know darn well vote for Democrat. And I'm listen, when we support Harry Rayford, do you think he's a Republican? He is not a Republican. You think people at his church vote Republican? They do not vote Republican. Do you think by strengthening his voice, I was strengthening conservatism? I was not. Right. So like I, sometimes I get frustrated that people are like, oh, there's so much bias. Right. Just, oh, like they're just Republicans. Listen, Mike, I'm sure that Mike has voted for more Republicans in his life than Democrats. OK, I suspect that's true. I've never been in the voting booth with him. I suspect it's true. But listen, that man respects everybody and he will work with anyone towards a godly and Christian end. And I have never seen him mistreat a Democratic person or attack them unfaithfully in a way that I thought demonstrated his capture to conservative politics. Christ is first for him. And he's always mm -hmm. proven that by his actions. So rant one, mm -hmm. rant number two, mm -hmm. when somebody asks, what news sources do you think are reliable that aren't like partisan, right? Um, Mike looked at me and I said, I have none that I can affirm. And he said that too. And then people commented in the comment section, oh, I guess we see what the real position is, which now I'm presuming here, but I think I'm right. Meaning that what that means is, is that Mike and I don't think that the mainstream media organizations are good news sources like CNN and ABC and NBC and so on and CBS. And therefore, we're part of the Republican kook right that thinks that the mainstream media can't be trusted. We should all believe in whatever, like, um, I forget the guy that worked at Breitbart News who's like going to get indicted now is, um, Steve Bannon. We should all like listen to Steve Bannon or something or just only read the Drudge Report or something. And that is not what we meant at all. Because I could have easily said like, oh yeah, listen to Fox News or like um, The Dispatch or Ricochet or any any like number of overtly conservative media sources. And I of course did not. Because the fact is, is that there I know of no news source that is overtly trying to be utterly objective and does not act from that objectivity out of a worldview of strongly progressivist, libertarian, or conservative mentality. There just is not one that I know of. And people, people sometimes tell me that there are some that they know of. And it, all it is is an exercise in them displaying how captured they are. Like, I've had people tell me that CNN, honest to God, CNN is an unbiased news source. Listen, I don't know 
I don't know what has to happen to you that you think that. I, I think sometimes people don't know the the philosophy of progressivism. I think that's what it is. I think that like you don't really understand all of its assumptions and you don't understand the assumptions of libertarianism or conservatism. So like if you don't understand the concepts of subsidiarity and civil society and all these other like fundamental building blocks of the other worldviews, that when you listen to a newscast that is completely baked for one side, but you really don't understand the foundational logic of the other worldviews, you don't even really realize you're listening to a screed like everything is being filtered through that little filter. And so CNN has a exclusively progressivist filter on everything that they say. Now, they, they and I would say they, they only say true things, but that, of course, isn't true. CNN has been caught saying things that were objectively false many times, highly misleading and jumping on things before they even knew what was going on. I mean, the, uh, the Covington Catholic kids was a great example of that, but there's been a lot of examples, right? Um, so it's, I've heard people say that the New York times is objective. Like that's crazy. Like, so if like I, I'm, I was a political science student, I do rhetoric and words and what words mean for a living. I interpret texts as my vocation. Okay. I know what people mean when they say stuff and I know how language is structured for belief and persuasion. Okay. I'm an insider. There is no news source that I know of. And I know of dozens that are not positional. Every news source I know of is positional. Now, some of them tell the truth better than others. Some of them are less crazy than others, right? So I think the Wall Street Journal is probably the best conservative news source. I think they're trying to report the news. They're trying to report it accurately. They do fact check. They do do corrections when they do get something objectively wrong, right? But the Wall Street Journal is a conservative news source, right? Um, the New York Times is totally progressivist in every inkling of every sentence. But I've heard a number of people tell me that their foreign news reporting is the best in the business. They just, they have really good informants. They have people embedded in good places. They get good news back that even military, some of the military leaders will read the foreign news page in the times. Right. I don't have any problem with that. That sounds, that's great. That's great. Right. So like what I, what you have to do if you want to know what's happening is you have to do a lot more work than you used to because even the fact checking websites are liars. Like there's so much like fact check this and the fact checking is totally biased too. Like Snopes, when it first came out, like in the nineties, for the most part, they were just kind of like, well, here's the facts or like, Oh, that was, that's an urban legend. Just going to let you know. Now it's like, uh, well, you know, like, like, I, I don't know if you know this, but Snopes has fact checked the Babylon B like three times. Like the Babylon Bee public, if you don't know this, Babylon Bee is like the onion. It's like a completely satirical paper. Yes. Yeah. They published a paper that CNN had literally bought large washing machines to spin the news that they'd spent hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> on laundry machines to better spin the news and Snopes fact checked it and then didn't make a retraction when they were like, um, we're a satirical newspaper. So like, I don't need, I don't trust back checks and I bet the polls, I, I suspect the polls will be off between three and five points again, this election. Cause I think the polls are all off too. I think we're, I think we're in the middle of a real crisis in terms of public communication within the media and hopefully it'll sort itself out. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So I, there are some, so I, okay. So, so what do you do? All right. So quickly, what do you do? Um, one is I would pick people that are not just greets. Like people who just aren't screamers. Like I don't, I don't listen to those people. I don't, I don't care to listen to them. Um, and so like, I don't listen to like Tucker Carlson, for example. I don't, 
I don't, I don't do Tucker Carlson. I don't do the like Chris Cuomo or whoever the, the guy, like I don't do any of these CNN people who you're just yelling to. And I just don't bother with it. Um, I also like um, expert sourced news. So for example, ricochet.com is like a center right organization, but it's a members only community that publishes like news digests, but also it's members make posts. So you'll get like a post from a, like a high level professional in Portland who like literally went to the riots in Portland and took pictures and talked to people themselves and then published a story like from their own personal experience. Like, and you can't like no one in the media has done that. Right. So like there are these kinds of news sources that you can get at, um, people like there'll be news about like what NASA is doing. And then somebody who's like literally an aerospace engineer will write an essay on like what's been going on the last 20 years. That's incredibly informative. So I haven't found like one of the, one of those on the left yet. I've, I've, I, I put out some feelers to try to get that. And I, I just am not getting the kind of feedback, but I've, I've been looking for that. My brother has a liberal um, think tank that he really likes. But like one of the things I also have said before is I read think tanks rather than news. I want to see research News doesn't really matter. I mean, news is just what happened, not what we should do. Because what most people do when they read the news is they want to say, well, what should we do now? Well, the news doesn't tell you anything about what we should, what we should do. It tells you one part of one thing of what happened in one way from one angle. But it is, still important, to, it is still important to know what is happening in the world. But that will always have a filter on it. Yeah, I mean, that's arguable. Uh, I mean, for most people, honestly, Jill, for most people, they have no control over what's happening in the world. Zero. But they will still feel stressed and depressed. That's true. Based on what they found. And uh, like I've said this in a number of places, about 35% of the people that come to me with like high levels of stress and anxiety that don't already have a highly depressive temperament, the first thing I do is no news, no social media for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And that cures about half of them. Well, that's because we, so you do need to know what's happening so you can respond to it. But it does require discernment. If you don't have discernment about what to take and what to leave and when to stop and um, what is true or false, which does require looking into details and research from think tanks. If you don't have yes. discernment, then yes, the news is going to be overwhelming and it's going to be confusing and it's going to be capturing and it's going to being anxiety yeah. producing. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I think most people just need to read news digests. There's a lot of places where you can get like yes. a, a news digest once a week. And for yes, national and global news, probably. I really don't think you need more than that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I do. And then I, honestly, I think we should get some news from some Christians because yeah, some of the Christian news sources are infected by progressivism or conservatism, but they also are trying to look from a more Christian perspective. I, like for, for example, I think the Christian post, most of the writers there are pretty conservative, but they're also Christian. And like, it's one of the only places you hear about what's happening to Uyghurs, what's happening, the, what Boko Haram is doing in West Africa, the slaughter of Christians in, um, in Southern uh, Kenya. Like there's a lot of news about what's happening to believers around the world that you are not going to get from the mainstream media. Right. And so I think some, some Christians, I was, so I, so that's why I would say news digests, um, a couple of Christian news sources, right. And then think tanks. And, um, I like AEI, which is a free market conservative one. Cato's pretty good. It's very libertarian, but it's, it's pretty good on the stuff they care about. Brookings is pretty left, but they do a good job with research. I think, I think that they, they do a good job of like trying to be reasonably centrist, right? And But they do a lot of stuff on economics and, and poverty development. 
Um, and so I think if you get a, if you read through some of the think tank stuff, you get a better sense of what we should do rather than just how everything's coming apart. If that makes mm -hmm. sense. Because really who's up, who's down, how many points Biden's up this week? Like none of that's going to matter in a couple of months. Like, and you can't do anything about it. There's nothing worse for the soul and for the human psychology other than direct trauma than paying a lot of attention and caring a lot about something you have no control over. You can control whether you exercise, what you eat, whether or not you're irritable with your family, whether or not you love your immediate neighbor. You can control all those things. Ultimately, when it comes down to Trump and Biden, you're going to get for t 10 seconds, you're going to walk into a booth and you're going to mark a box and you already know which one you're going to mark. So who cares? Who cares? Yes, all the focus on what else is happening externally that we can't control, I think then makes us even more, um, it's easy to blame everything else for the problems versus each individual. What's my personal responsibility right now? And... Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, our culture is inflamed with anger because we're blaming right. everyone else because we're consumed with what's going on around us versus what do I need to develop and what do, how do I need to grow and who do I need to love? And so that focus shift is really harmful for humans. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you connect yourself to those larger issues, you have no control over, you can't help but associate people with those problems. Right. So like you, you like you learn about black crime. Every black person seems like a criminal to you or you learn about like white racism. Every white person's a racist or like you like you naturally take these identity politics, global things and you like read them into your immediate relationships and people you interact with. And it's it's so toxic and it's usually completely false. Mm -hmm. And so I think that not only is there not do you lose a bunch of positive effects that you're not immediately focused on the next good thing. There's a bunch of negative effects where you start judging people and you think you know everything about people and you, th you start associating people with big, the bigger problems rather than allowing them to be part of your lives right now. And it's so disgustingly toxic and people just need to let it go. So for the most part, I just, I was just say consume as little news as possible. Maybe read a digest news digest, um, emphasize local news over global news. If you want to know what we should do, pay attention to think tanks, not the news. Stop reading almost all opinion. Um, and if you have anxiety or depression um, that it, you're not used to, the first thing to do is, besides eating a good breakfast and getting to sleep on time, is get off of all social media, everything, everything in social media, and stop watching all the all news, and do that for two weeks, and then and see how you feel. You'll probably see a marked improvement. Mm -hmm. We're gonna get into most of this as well in the next series. So, so I'm really excited about that. Both the personal responsibility of your own spiritual devotion and growth and godliness, but also how do we love others and get to know other people and their perspectives and how do we um, engage in walking with one another through what we're each going through and carry each other's burdens and what is the impact of the church on our spiritual growth. We're going to get into all of that in the next series too. And yeah. So stick, I just want to clarify that question where people are like, well, if Mike wouldn't say news source, I guess we know what side they're on. See what they think is that we're being naive and everybody else is being naive. But if that was your comment, you're the one being naive. I mean, it just is, is true that most news sources are dominated by progressivism because that's what the universities are dominated by. In fact, and it's not like a question, like not, unless I heard 97% of people in journalism openly identified as progressives. That's going to happen. So like, we're going to have to wake up to some of this stuff and recognize that um, you're, you're, what team you're on is never going to solve it. And you're always going to be loving your enemy.
And I think the Christians have to find, just like a lot of Christians realize that the perversion of the Republican ideology, that everybody should just stand up on their own weight and pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, that that is a, that that is a, a completely unchristian view of the world. And it is. They are slower to recognize that many of the themes and memes within progressivism are just as anathema. And identity politics is probably chief among them. All right. Nick, do you want to say anything else in this episode? <laughs> well, are you going to try to wrap it up for the fourth time? Yes. I don't think so. Thanks, everybody, okay. for listening. All right. Thanks, guys. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.